have your Bible, open up to Revelation chapter 22. Revelation chapter 22. Uh, Nathan did the, the yeoman's work this morning in reading the text of Scripture. Um, if anybody's worried about him, he did volunteer. So I didn't make him read all that. And, uh, but he did volunteer 22, 1 through 22, 1 through 5, we'll read, but we'll be focusing on um, all of 21 as well. As you're opening up there, let me just say a word of gratitude to those of you who serve our children so well. What a joy it is to get to see our preschool choir ring and sing this morning. One of my endearing, enduring memories, I, I should say, from my early years here, I can remember one of the early things that we tried to do was make sure we had folks in every age of nursery care every Sunday, no matter what. And those rooms got depressing sometimes because they would just be sitting there. So I can remember in those early days, I don't know if you guys know this, but I'm allergic to discouragement. I don't like for folks to get discouraged. So I would go down there during Sunday school to folks, precious saints, some even with the Lord now who are sitting in empty rooms. And I would say, thank you for doing this. They'll be here next week. They'll be here next week. I know it's empty today, but they'll be here next week. And isn't it a joy to get to go to church during next week and to get to see those precious children sing and lead us in worship. Um, Y'all, this church, have made so many sacrifices from small ones like sitting in empty rooms all the way up to large ones that I don't have time to recall right now, but what a joy it is to get to see First Baptist Church be a multi-generational church. It's one of the great joys and privileges of my life uh, to get to see that. So thank you, church, um, for just letting us see the gospel at work. This morning, If you have a Bible, open there. Stand with me, if you would, out of reverence for the reading of the words of our God. John writes, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, in such a way that as the words on this page are being read, God Himself is speaking to us. Hear the word of the Lord, beginning in verse 1. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads. And night will be no more. And they will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light. And they will reign forever and ever. Let's pray. Oh God, if You would, please open our hearts and minds today to receive Your Word. And God, I pray we would be changed by it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I grew up, as you know, in a small town. Um, in fact, when I was growing up, Gazin was a big town to me. And uh, so sometimes people will say to me, like, well, you, you pastor in a smaller town, right? And I say, no, it's a pretty big town. They had a red lobster. And uh, so, uh, you know, I mean, bigger than Boaz, you know what I mean? Um, but when I was young, growing up in a small town, um, cities could be scary. It's a scary thing sometimes for me to think about going to a 
to a larger city. Maybe some of you have been there before as well. You found yourself in a place you've never been before. And, and it's a little scary to be in a place where there's lots and lots of people. You can be overwhelmed by it. It can give us a lot of anxiety. There, there are a lot of unknowns in the city, a lot of sin you hear about, things that happen, murder rates, things like that happen, tended to happen, at least for a little boy from Boaz, Alabama. Those things happened in the city. I, um, I can remember as a young boy finding myself just having anxiety at different times, knowing we needed to go to a bigger place. You can be scared. You can find yourself challenged by the thought of a city, which is one reason why it's so fascinating, I think, to me and maybe to you, that the Bible opens in a garden but closes in a city. And as we get down into chapter 22, we'll see some of this, some of this sort of anxiety being washed away and the way God takes even those things which are big and seem like sort of not only capitals of our place and our country and other things, our, our state or whatever else, but also capitals of sin for us, big hives of sort of villainy uh, that are there. We, we see those things the way even that is redeemed. But I'll tell you this, as far as our world now, folks are not hopeful. Folks are not hopeful about where we're headed. I, I read a report recently uh, from earlier this year that showed that more and more Americans, maybe in unprecedented ways, feel hopeless about the future, and in particular, the future of America. And it, I found it very interesting as I read the data. This is a bipartisan concern. They report themselves, these folks in the study, report themselves as extremely worried about the future of their country more than they feel hopeful. Almost 80% of Americans, according to this study, would say they feel at least very worried, not necessarily extremely, but more people feel extremely worried. You had another 30%, it's 55, I think, that feel extremely, the highest amount of worry you can imagine about the future. Another 30% feel very worried. So it's the overwhelming majority of people feel worried about the future. And it's one thing, you know, to kind of sit down and settle in and just live your life and not worry about the future, but we are constantly bombarded, right? The people on TV... Want, I'm just going to say it, all right? The people on TV want you to be worried about the future because they want you to tune in to hear them talk about how worried you should be about the future. And anxiety makes us more worried and more agitated and more scared. And it becomes harder and harder and harder to simply love our neighbor as ourselves, to do the things God has called us to do. You see, we are not the only ones who understand that the world is broken. And Christians, I've, I've noticed Christians wring their hands a lot these days. We're just doing a lot of hand-wringing. I've talked for, for years and years and years now, almost the entirety of my ministry, about chicken little Christianity. We've got to stop running around telling people the sky is falling because we know the one who upholds the sky. And when he comes back and a true cataclysm, an actual apocalypse happens, that's not bad news for us. That's good news for us, God. When Jesus comes back. We're not the only ones who understand that the world is broken. We're not the only people who feel tempted to wring our hands. We're not the only people that are tempted. We have folks all around us who are running around yelling, the sky is falling. People are making lots of money by telling people the sky is falling. Poor, if, if Chicken Little could have figured out how to monetize that, he would have been a lot better off in his culture and society. They would have put him on the evening news. We're not the only ones who understand that the world is broken, but Christians are uniquely available.
to offer hope to a broken world. Nobody's hopeful except us, guys. And if 85% of Americans are very, very worried about the future, that includes some of us in this room. We have to be included in that number. We have every reason to be hopeful because we know how God will fix a broken world. The greatest story ever told opens in a garden that God made and called very good. A world that God made and called very good. And it ends in a city that transforms the whole world that God created to be very good through the person and work of His Son. The greatest story ever told ends with the consummation of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. We go from creation to the full, to redemption, and now restoration or consummation. The final and the full coming of the kingdom of Christ. And this is the only chapter of the greatest story ever told that we haven't seen yet. That hasn't quite happened yet. It's the one that deals in hope. Not faith, not trust, though there's some of that there, but hope. Hoping for something that will yet happen. Once again, we will see God's people in God's place under God's rule with all things made right and put under the feet of Jesus. I want to show you this morning four things. um, Four reasons. So not three, but four. Okay? So don't freak out. You get a bonus point. It's like a a leap year. Every once in a while, there's just an extra point. We've got to figure out where to put it. Point four today. Four reasons why the gospel gives us hope. Four reasons why you should be hopeful as a Christian. And as we look forward to the consummation of the kingdom of Christ, why we should be hopeful. Here's the first. The gospel gives us hope in suffering. The the gospel gives us hope in suffering. I saw, John says, a new heaven and a new earth... For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. That's a imagery throughout the book of Revelation shows wickedness emerging out of the sea. So I think it's a, a picture of the fallenness. I don't think that means there's no more water because we're just about to hear about a river. So I don't necessarily think there won't be oceans in the new heavens and the new earth, but this is a, a way imagery that John is using to show us the way wickedness has been wiped out. And I saw, verse 2, the holy city... New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be His people. And God Himself will be with them as their God. And notice what God will do. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. Of all the challenges to the faith of people that I encounter, I think suffering may be the most frequent and the most pronounced challenge to faith. Very rarely, though, do I encounter people for whom it's their own suffering. That's the challenge to their faith. In fact, the more I encounter Christian people who are suffering, the more they're thankful for their faith. But that's another sermon. In general, though, when we see others 
suffer. When we see horrible gruesomeness, when we see awful brutality, when we see suffering in others, even those we love, we find ourselves asking, how could God allow this? It's understandable that folks would feel this way. In all honesty, one of the hardest parts of my job is the frequency with which I encounter and help bear the burden of suffering in other people. It's hard to watch y'all suffer. I don't, I don't enjoy that part of my job. I love trying to comfort people. I love bringing a, a gospel word. I love pointing people to hope. But, but I, you, you can ask my wife, it's hard for me to sleep at night knowing when you're, you are suffering. You're going through a difficult time. It's important to remember, as we've all also already talked about at the cross, it's important to remember and to bear in mind as we consider this that Jesus identified with us in our suffering. He came and suffered with us. Now, I'm not even talking quite about the cross yet, right? Jesus came and lived in a fallen, sinful world and went through all sorts of different suffering in His life. We don't see any examples of it in Scripture, but it's hard for me to believe that Jesus at some point or another didn't get sick. I can just see Mary grabbing little, little Lord Jesus by the arm and pulling Him over and wiping His nose, you know, because He had the sniffles. He, he, he suffered with us. He came into this world and went through what we go through. I, I just, some, I'm no kidding, sometimes I am comforted by the fact, I think, you know, Jesus had awkward teenage years. You know, Jesus was 13 at one point. And it just makes me feel better about life, you know, because these guys over here are really cool. And they're, these are non-awkward teenage years over here. But you don't want to see, thank God there was not social media, Facebook when I was in middle school and early in high school, you know. Nobody wants to see me in my bleached hair phase. Nobody wants to experience me in puka shell necklaces or whatever else. Nobody wants to see that. Nobody wants that. And so it's a comfort to me that know that Jesus suffered with us. Right? He suffered with us. But I want you to know we also have hope because Jesus suffered for us. And on our behalf, we, we've not suffered near the amount we deserve. Jesus took suffering we deserve. And we also have hope that one day God will eliminate all suffering because Jesus defeated sin and suffering and death at the cross. He promises a better world to come. Do you see the beauty of these verses? I hope you do. God Himself will be our God. He will, we will be in His presence. And in His very presence, we will be healed. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed. The best we can do in this life is offer comfort that maybe things will be okay, but still in the back of our hearts and minds, we know. Even when someone wipes the tears away from our eyes, even when we're comforted, comforted, even when I come to your bedside and pray with you, even when I try to comfort my children when they're hurting, the best I can do is say, I think God's going to take care of this one day. I really believe He will. God can do something different. He can wipe away those tears. Why? He can wipe them away permanently. How? Because He holds the keys to death and to eternal life because of what Jesus has done. Do you see the way that God Himself gives us hope 
in suffering, He Himself will comfort us and heal us. What an opportunity we have as Christians to suffer with hope and to offer hope to the suffering. What an opportunity we have to speak life and hope into the lives of those who are suffering. And people are suffering in ways we cannot even imagine. I want to encourage you to try your best to be gracious, even when someone's suffering in ways you cannot understand. I mean, there are categories that emerge almost daily among folks that we are simply unfamiliar with. All sorts of categories people talk about, and they, we think, my goodness, we call them snowflakes or do this or do that. And, and listen, maybe, maybe we could use a little dose of toughening up in our society. I, I don't know. I'm just not confident it's our job to do it. I think maybe we should just be gracious to those who need grace and let God sort out the rest. What if we offered hope in suffering and hope while suffering? What if we spoke a gospel word into the lives of those who desperately need grace. What if Jesus is the answer to our suffering, to your suffering? I really believe He is. Second of all, the gospel gives us hope for justice. The gospel gives us hope for justice. Verses uh, 21, 4, 5 through 8. He who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. But let's skip down a little bit. And he gives promises for those who are Christians. But he goes on in verse 7. The one who conquers will have this heritage. And I will be his God and he will be my son. But verse 8. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, murderers the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. We live in a world that longs for justice. And, and even as we witness the world trying to bring about its own distorted version of it, the world's sort of like Moses right now. Early on in the book of Exodus, when he saw the injustice of how God's people were being treated, and he tried to bring Moses' justice about, and he murdered the Egyptian, right? Someone who probably deserved to be murdered for being an a, a enslaver and a wicked leader and ruler and everything else. And yet Moses was then exiled from that place. He left for a long time and it was not until later that he was able to bring God's justice about in Egypt. In a similar way, the world is trying to bring about a distorted version of justice. But the reality is a desire for justice is inevitable and necessary and a good thing. All of us long for judgment in our hearts, justice in our hearts. But there's a problem. There's something funny about us. We tend to recoil at the idea of a God who judges. Our world tends to, and even those of us as Christians, tend to, tend to recoil at the idea of a judging God. But I want to challenge you to reconcile your frustration with God's judgment with your innate desire for justice. Think, think about it like this. It's one thing to be angry at God for allowing the world to be broken like it is. And some of you find yourself sometimes frustrated with God. God, how are you letting this stuff happen in Ukraine? God, how did you let that happen to my friend's grandbaby? Or what, whatever it is, you're frustrated with the brokenness 
of the world. Many people are. It's another thing, though, to be angry at God because He reveals Himself as the one who will judge the world. In other words, to be mad at God because hell exists. And many people are mad at God because the Bible teaches that hell exists and that God will judge people there. But I hope you see that it would be a contradiction. It would be fundamentally contradictory to be mad at God for the state of the world and the injustice in the world and mad at God for the way He plans to fix it. It would be a contradiction. Listen, my friends, no one will go to hell who doesn't deserve to. Nobody will be judged who doesn't deserve God's justice. We cannot simultaneously be mad at God for not fixing the world and for the fact that He will be just when He fixes the world. At some point or another, we have to think through, maybe our problem isn't God, but but the fact that we're not Him. Maybe it's that we want to have our own version of justice. Maybe it's that we're impatient. Maybe we don't even know what justice truly is. I think we have to allow God to define justice because He gives us the category in the first place. But there will be nobody who who puts their faith in Jesus who's cast away. There will be nobody who obeys God through faith in Jesus who will be cast away. There will be nobody who is punished by God who does not deserve punishment. Many of us long for justice. What if Jesus is the answer to our longing for justice? I believe He is. Third of all, the Gospel gives us hope to know God perfectly. We ought to be hopeful because of the fact that God's going to deliver us from suffering. We ought to be hopeful because God is going to make the world right. He's going to bring justice into this world. But third of all, we ought to be hopeful because the gospel gives us hope to know God perfectly. Verses 9 through 21, I wish, I wish we had time to dig into all of the imagery there. But to suffice it to say, we see the way that the perfection and beauty and glory of the bride of the Lamb as the new Jerusalem is coming down out of heaven, the way it's reflected in countless ways. We see the way that the saints of the Old Testament's foundation and the, the saints of the New Testament's foundation are united together in this new kingdom, the way all of God's people in this beautiful city will be together. But verse 22 shows us something I think we really need to focus on this morning. There's no temple. There's no temple in Jerusalem, of all places. What an odd sight for Jerusalem to not have a temple. It's known among good godly people as the place where there's a temple. Earlier in chapter 21, verse 3, John gives us a little preview of, of what I'm saying here. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be His people. And God Himself will be with them as their God. And then verse 22 picks this idea back up and says, I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty and the Lamb. Of all that can and be, will be restored in this world, of all that's beautiful, of all that's lovely about the world that is to come, everything that's beautiful and lovely and wonderful and great and glorious about heaven is that way because God is there. Because we get 
God. Consider then the way that this reality even shows the beauty of our society when God's the center of it. Notice how John goes on. By its light will who? The nations walk. And the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day. And there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations. But nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Do you see this? All the nations and the kings of the nations will bring the glory that God had given them, the foundation of the world. They'll bring this in a perfect form in a purified, in a cleansed form, into the presence of God, and all of the anarchy, and all of the craziness, and all of the wildness, and all of the uncertainty, and all of the broken and shaken foundations all over this world will be set aright, and will be made peaceful and calm, and will be restored to the glory that they ought to have in the very presence of God. The beauty of the world to come is that we will be in the very presence of God and He will make all things right and new. It's the reason why we get so crazy every time there's an election. It's not because we want a new president, though we may, whatever. It's because we want a king. All idolatries are rooted in our desire to know God fully and perfectly. And if you want to think through what you get angriest and most frustrated about, more than likely, if God were in that place, things would be better. And the same is true for this whole world. One day we'll all live in God's kingdom. This is our hope, and it is the hope of the world to dwell with God and for God to dwell with us, to know and to love God and all of the hopes and dreams we have in this world and for this world can only be truly realized if we find them in God and God alone through the gospel of Jesus Christ. What if Jesus is the answer for your desire to know God, to love God, to have an authentic spirituality I think he is finally the gospel gives us hope for a healed world the world is definitely broken and I think we can all agree on this I don't think there's anybody who's like no I think things are going pretty good you know we can all see the way that the world is broken And all the time, everybody's trying to make a new way to heal the world. To try to make things better, to try to make things right. And I commend that work. It's something Christians ought to be doing. But I think what's frustrating, and goodness gracious, if we can't see it over the last couple of years, I don't know when we can, is that even our best efforts to make things better, even the purest efforts we have to make things better in a fallen world often have unintended consequences that make other things worse. And sometimes they even make the thing we're trying to fix worse. And, and, and we can resign ourselves if we're not careful to sheer hopelessness. It's hard to make the world a better place. 
An angel guards the garden. And yet after all this time, for all the parts of the story, for all that's gone wrong in the world, look at chapter 22. Do you notice anything about this city? Do you notice any of this imagery? And the angel showed me the river of the water of life, brightest crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. And also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Though the world's been broken, here in the city of God, things are starting to look a whole lot like Eden again, aren't they? The trees, the rivers, but there in the center of it is the very throne of God. In the middle of things being made right, the Father, the Lamb are there. And though an angel guards the garden, Jesus, through His blood, has purchased for us a new way home. He's opened the gates to the city of God. He has taken God's original design that was lost through Adam and it is now being regained through Christ. And that's why Eden, the new Eden and the new heaven and the new earth is not a garden but a city because all the work and all the effort and all the achievements of people through the centuries, though right now we see that it's tainted by sin and it's broken by the fall, one day the day will come where it will all be redeemed through the Gospel. They will see His face. Verse 4. And His name will be on their foreheads. And night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun. For the Lord God will be their light. And they will remain and they will reign forever and ever. This is why we're hopeful. Because through the cross and the resurrection, Jesus Christ is making all things new. Things can feel hopeless, but as Christians, we are hopeful. Not because we have a Pollyanna sort of view of the world. Not because of mere sentimentality or even mere spirituality. We are not a church of positivity. We are a church of realism. We are hopeful because we know the truth. And the truth we know is how the story ends that God will make things all right and all new.